0: Hello and welcome to episode number one hundred and fifty-four of the Agro Innovations Podcast. My name is Frank Aragona and I am your host. This episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinovations.com/slash podcast on Monday, November 3rd, 2014. I hope everyone is adjusting well to the time change. And this episode of the podcast has been sponsored by four donors. It was a very good week for the podcast. Thank you to Michael C., Olaf M., Amanda H., and Christopher H. Your very generous and substantial donations help me to continue to provide this content to the listenership If you would like to follow their example, please click on the PayPal Donate button on the right-hand side of the website agroinnovations.com. This episode of the podcast continues many of the themes we have been addressing over the past several episodes, many episodes now, and much of that has to do with the socioeconomics of permaculture. So I hope you will enjoy this interview with Narendra Varma. On this episode of the Agro Innovations podcast, we are joined by Narendra Varma, who is the director and leader of the Our Table Cooperative. And this cooperative, I believe is in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Narendra Varma, welcome to the Agro Innovations podcast. Thank you. So tell us a little bit, just kind of a brief um Summary of what your cooperative is
1: so our cooperative, which is called our table um, is a co- is a multi stakeholder cooperative that is uh, designed to kind of model a community scale food system um, all the way from the field to the dinner plate, so to speak um, and the idea that we started with was that um, really the food system that we have today is broken for a number of reasons and that um, the food system that we would want to see is something that we don't really know what it looks like, Um, you know, so we need to collectively and uh, come together as a culture really um, and figure out what it is that a vital relocalized food system should look like. Um, But that that conversation has to be had as a whole culture and not just as a a group of producers um, or a group of um, eaters, but really as a a whole. So we decided um, to put the entire system um, into a single vertically integrated cooperative, but at a very small community scale so that it meets the needs of our very particular community um, and model the entire thing so that we can understand where... Uh, the problems lie and what sort of solutions
0: make sense in today's world okay so that's the philosophical genesis of this but what's the mm-hmm. what's the human genesis of this I mean who how did you as a group come together and one decide that you wanted to do this and then two actually mm-hmm. be able to execute it I mean I'm sure a lot of people can get together and have an idea like this but actually executing it is is a real challenge so can you talk about that so,
1: yeah, absolutely. So it's a it's a it's a little bit different. Our evolution um, it's uh, sort of a long long path that um, was kind of meandering. Um, we started off with um, my background is in high tech. Um, I was a beneficiary of the uh, internet boom in the go-go '90s, um, and um, when I quit the uh, um, the tech world, I was sort of and dabbling in a bu- bu- variety of things. Um, and really coming to the realization that our current industrial food system embodies many of the problems we face as a society and as a species, really. Um, Now, we had some financial resources that uh, we were able to uh, gain during these global 90s, not because we were particularly clever, but mostly because we happened to be at the right place at the right time. And uh, we really sort of thought of ourselves as, um, uh, you know, people sort of trying to... um, at some level, invest in a better future. Um, but really, when you think about the word investment, most people think Wall Street, and uh, in reality, of course, the word is a far um, means a lot more than that. And that whether you have any money or not, you are constantly each of us um, investing in some sort of vision for the future that we hold within ourselves. Um, whether that's time or money or, or, or energy or, frankly, love, which is, which is the one thing that sort of gets left out when people talk about the word investment. Um, but we really were very interested in this space, my wife and I, and uh, were sort of thinking about, well, what can we um, do? And the, the, uh, the question that we were asking ourselves sort of uh, came from that third ethic of, of permaculture design, of sharing the surplus or fair share, um, from this kind of idea that um, excesses of any kind in a biological system could be seen as akin to pollution. And I found this to be a very provocative idea, this idea that um, not only if you have, let's say, an excess of knowledge or an excess of, uh, of some resource or some um, you know, physical good, but also if you have an excess of, let's say, money um, – And I would submit that what a lot of the problems that I was seeing at the time, and this is 2008, 2009, and the financial system collapses, were really at some level an excess of money being going, uh, you know, and and being akin to pollution and doing bad things. Um, So we started to think about these things in those terms and um, really wanted to kind of um, do something very directly to um, promote this idea of young people getting into and farming, um, and we're looking at some of the problems that young people were facing, you know, access to land, access to capital, and thought, okay, well, we have some capital, and we have the time and love and money and energy, and we'd like to devote to this. So um, we moved from Seattle, which is where we were based, down to uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, mostly because the land use system in Oregon allows you to have excellent farmland very close to a city's um, core. Um, purchased some, uh, a 50-acre farm and um, started down the path of, of trying to be a farm incubator, sort of like the InnerVille Project in Vermont. Um, and one of the things we were doing at the same time is that we wanted to sort of ask these questions about what does it really mean to be sustainably farming? You know, what does that word mean, sustainable, um, in the long term? And we came up with this um, a very beautiful sort of master plan for the farm that was based on permaculture design principles and a biodynamic approach to agriculture. Uh, we spent about a year, hired, um, formed a team of, of some really excellent permaculture folks and came up with this beautiful design and very quickly realized that um, it would be very difficult to put that design of and that land management ethic into to implement that land management ethic unless the broader culture and economic system was incentivizing that land management ethic versus incentivizing the exact opposite, which is sort of monoculture. Um, I mean, we found ourselves really um, realizing very, very quickly, and we were new to this, um, that monoculture was a lot simpler in many ways. And certainly the marketplace, the, the outside economy and culture were were very much forcing us in that direction or pushing us in that direction, so we had this conversation. we said, "Well, all right, which one do we want to keep? Do we want to keep the land management ethic, or do we want to keep this kind of current economic model, which is all about this mythology of that current economic model is about sort of individual entrepreneurship um, and you know um, the, the rugged individual kind of mythology that we have as a culture, um, and we decided that it was really the um, the land management ethic that we wanted to keep, but in order for us to keep it and actually put it into practice in a economically viable way, we had to come up with an economic system and a cultural system that would support it. So we started to, to put the same sort of effort that we put into the land design, into the, what the permaculturalists would call invisible structure design or the social permaculture design, um, and completely switched gears and came up with this idea of a multi-stakeholder cooperative and really an ecosystem of not only legal entities, and it can get quite complex um, because, of course, you're working within this framework of the current system um, while trying to create a new one within it. Um, you know, um, and this idea of a multi-stakeholder cooperative so that all of the players, all of the human beings in the system could work in a cooperative way um, and really a model a more sustainable ecosystem. Now, the people, though, because we are set up um, as a multi-stakeholder cooperative, the stakeholders are everybody who works on the farm or in the co-op, whether you're a bookkeeper or a farmer or a truck driver or a marketing person or, um, or you know, a store person or whatever it is. Those are all worker members of the co-op. We also not only grow product on our own 60-acre farm, but then we also aggregate produce and, and value-added products from other regional producers who are also members of the co-op. So that's sort of like a producer co-op for them. And then we have consumers in the co-op. So that's how we kind of close that loop. Um, And the worker members of the co-op, just like most other worker co-ops, are employees of the organization. So one of the things that we were finding is that, you know, there was lots of young people today who were interested in taking up farming and they, by hook or by crook, find some land and they get started and they, you know, sat, work 80-hour days and maybe have an off-farm job to pay the bills and struggle and struggle and struggle, but they always run up against the same walls of that sort of broader economic system when really they're not competing with other farms like them. They're competing with 5,000 acre farms in, in, in California. Uh, and it's very difficult for them to survive, and most of them go under. And we thought that, well, this is kind of insane, um, if you you know, how do you get two million young new farmers to go into this when there's absolutely no economic future in sight for them? It's really easy for them to sort of envision, you know, it's just too difficult. So um, we thought, well, what if you said, okay, I'm gonna pay farmers a base living wage and then on top of that give them the benefits of entrepreneurship like profit sharing and decision making by putting it within a cooperative ownership structure didn't come together as a group of people and start a co-op. We came together really as a design and then found people that were willing to kind of come on board and then gave them the power to modify it and, and morph it into as it evolves.
0: I, I want to dissect this cooperative model in some detail in this interview. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but before we go there, I want to ask you, it, it feels to me like... From what I've seen, and I've been in this space for many years now, a lot of people come up, you describe this process of this realization of seeing people being on this treadmill of futility in terms of being up against this monolithic economic system uh, that is very difficult to change as a single uh, farming entrepreneur. And yet I have seen so many cases where people get to that point and they don't have that realization that you and your organization have um, or had. What, what is the dynamic here? I mean, why are people getting stuck on that treadmill and, and not moving towards this cooperative model that you guys have discovered or uh, relearned?
1: Um, I think it's purely um, the cultural mythology of individual entrepreneurship that we have saddled with. I didn't grow up in America. I, I have a different set of um, of mythologies that I, and stories that I carry with me. I mean, I've lived in this country for a very long time, longer than I lived in India where I grew up. Um, so clearly, I mean, obviously I carry the American stories inside me as well, but not at the same level as someone who's native here. Um, so I, I guess part of it is just being willing to say that, you know, we, a lot of people who are working in this space, um, uh, we were talking earlier about permaculture design. You know, apply that to to the to the physical landscape, and that feels very natural and very obvious to them. And there's this sort of aha moment when you when you see people in a permaculture design course, and then they run off and, and implement these things either on their backyards at, at a suburban or, or urban scale, or even on their small farms. But very few people um, really take the missive that permaculture design is just a design methodology and can be applied to any system, not just the physical landscape, and then actually follow through with that and do it. Um, Because frankly, the social stuff is significantly harder. Um, You're dealing with much broader issues. You're dealing with people, far less predictable. Um, We know very little about the soil and about ecosystems. We know even less about each other at some level. So I think, uh, and, and people are stuck in the cycle of just trying to pay the bills and make the ends meet. So there's a there's some luxury of time that we had um, that I think allowed us to, to go in that direction.
0: Well, of course, that luxury of time that you had now translates into a luxury of example for the rest of us. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, and I mean, we've always said, you know, we're not trying to create the model that can be replicated all over the place. We're just trying to create a model because we as a society need thousands and thousands of new stories and new models. Um, and, you know, the successful ones will bubble to the top and, and hopefully we'll all learn from the ones that weren't successful. So I always tell people everything we do is completely open source and you're welcome to copy it, but make sure you learn from our mistakes because otherwise that would have been uh, for naught, you know.
0: So um, what are... As you talk about this being open source and ideally uh, people can replicate it, where do we start there? I mean, can you break down what this model looks like and what elements need to be in place, um, how you go about dealing with the social organization, um, what are the different uh, layers of institutional structures that you've built? All of these things, can you break them down for people so that they can start to think about it? Yeah,
1: I mean, I can, I can break down what we've done, but I cannot, in all honesty, tell you that it works yet. It's very new. Some parts of it are, are sort of have, seem to be working, but until the business as a whole is economically sustainable and has, has a certain amount of history to it, it's very difficult to say, oh, yes, this is it, it works, right? So I would, I would start with that kind of word of caution, I guess, um, Um, What we have as a structure is that one of the things we wanted to do um, because of of sort of the way real estate valuation uh, works in our society is we wanted to separate the idea of land ownership from land operation. Now, this was a a very um, perilous kind of path to walk down because it's very easy to fall into the trap of essentially some kind of patron-based, you know, serfdom, right? Um, So how do you kind of avoid that trap um The word sharecropping comes up, but it has a very negative connotation in American society, um although in reality share cropping doesn't have to be negative. um you know the concept itself is not is not bad um but we we started to kind of walk down some of these these sort of um so we say cultural um pathways that would would be kind of uncomfortable um and really examine them and realize that it's really impractical to think that land, farmland, outside of urban population centers, which is where most of our population lives now and needs to be fed from, um, is something that's suddenly going to come become affordable for the average person. That's just not doesn't seem to be happening. Now, I have a vision for kind of common land ownership, but we wanted to model it first and say, can this work? Can you separate ownership, which is such a core idea to sort of American farming, that, you know, it's me on my piece of land, um, you know, all the way from sort of that initial um, homesteading movement um, to this idea that I can still work a piece of land, I can feel a sense of ownership and a sense of stewardship, but I don't necessarily own it on a piece of paper. And that's very anti-American at some level. Okay? But we were also at the same time kind of looking at the flaws of capitalism. I mean, I would you know this is the big sacred cow in our society. Capitalism. You're never supposed to question capitalism. And I'm not submitting to you that capitalism is all bad, but it has some structural flaws in it. Um, you know, the big ones for, for this purposes of this discussion being the commodification of nature and the commodification of labor. Both of those things are seen as cost units. Um, so the tendency is always to minimize those costs, and and you know the results are plain to see, um, both for, for people and for um, the landscape. So, um, looking at that and saying, all right, how do we kind of do this separation? We said, well, a land trust design is an interesting model. Now, a land trust generally tends to be a nonprofit, which, um, in a legal sense, is a public benefit corporation. Right? The idea is that. Um, nonprofits don't pay taxes because they are benefiting the public at large, and that's sort of this quid pro quo between the public at large getting taxation money from that corporation um, versus the benefit that that corporation is providing. So, we modeled the idea of a land trust. So our land is actually owned by a land trust. Now it's not that legally a nonprofit, and there's a, sort of a silly little legal speed bump for that. But that's a short-term speed bump, and long-term it will become a nonprofit. Okay, um, and then we said that that land is then leased out to a operating entity, and there's some advantages to that. Um, the advantages are liability. Okay, the advantages are that the operating entity cannot hijack the land cannot be tempted by, let's say, the developer that walks in, uh, you know, rides in on this fancy car and offers you millions for this land because the town is growing up around you. You know, so there's that. So by separating ownership, you get rid of that temptation. And I find it sort of the supreme irony that so many farmers in this country work their whole lives to, you know, protect their land and to improve their land. And then because of the economic realities of farming, when they approach retirement age, they're secretly hoping that somebody comes and buys their land at a high price so that they can retire, because that is their only asset, and that is 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 you know heart wrenching for a lot of people to do, um, but a lot of people do end up having been put in that position, and of course what happens is that that land gets sold to developers, and then all of that life or generations and generations of work is is destroyed by by putting concrete all over it. So. Uh, you know, how do you kind of solve some of these very structural problems? Um, so we separated the land ownership. We we said, all right, the the actual operating entity has to have some of the positive features of of capitalism, of capitalistic enterprise. You know, what profit is is a motivator, right? Um, but it also has to have some shared risk because this is a very very risky endeavor. It's not like me going off and starting a little factory to make some widget. Um, that's difficult enough. Small businesses fail at 90-plus percent rate. Now we're talking about small businesses in farming. Most of these young people who are doing this don't have a family background in farming, so haven't really grown up with it. They're new to the field itself. And then on top of that, they're dealing with this economic system that's really working against them. So, you know, it's very difficult for people to succeed. Um, So we said, all right, how do you share that risk? It's too risky, this, this individual entrepreneurship model. How do you share that risk? Um, a cooperative um, seems like an interesting model to try. It's not some kind of weird pinky, uh, you know, Pinko o strange thing. Over 2 billion people on this planet belong to cooperatives. They are very, very successful, um, not only in other parts of the world, but also in America. Um, and, of course, the agricultural communities in this country are more familiar with cooperatives than urban people are because there's so many ag cooperatives. Um, but there's very few large system, multi-stakeholder cooperatives in this country. In fact, there's none, really. So we looked to models like um, the Mondragon cooperatives in Spain or the Emilio Romano cooperatives in Italy um, as a way of sort of thinking about a, a cooperative economy. Now, obviously, we didn't have the resources to, to model a cooperative economy at a larger scale here, but we said, well, you know, we're just going to look at the food system in this very small community and see if we can, if we can kind of do it there. Um, so that's where the idea of a multi-stakeholder cooperative came from. And I'd spoken earlier about this kind of culture-wide co- conversation, but we also felt that the economic relationships in the current food system, which is really a very linear chain, you have farmers on one end of the chain, and then you have all these middle functions, uh, you know, distribution, aggregation, retail processing, and then you have uh, the consumer, uh, and I use that word carefully, at, at the other end of the chain. And, of course, what's happened is that the consumer pays a dollar uh, for some food. The farmer gets less than, you know, 12% of that. And everybody in the middle is getting the, bulk, the lion's share of that dollar. The consumer is not getting a very good product from the industrial food system. It's unhealthy. It's not, not very tasty, et cetera, et cetera. The farmer is basically on the edge of financial viability and survival. I mean, farmer suicides are, are insane all over the planet. Um, and the middle guys are getting rich. Um, and, of course, because it's a chain, the folks in the middle and they're big, they have all the momentum and they can yank also on both sides of the chain. Now, recently, we see farmers uh, making an end run, small-scale farmers making an end run around that system by going direct to consumer, whether that's through a CSA or going through a farmer's market and stuff like that. And that's great, but how does that scale? Um, you know, that's a, it's a problem. So we said, all right, the economic justice within this system is totally broken. Consumers don't are not really getting that good value for money, um, ignoring the fact that, you know, and we'll, uh, well, I'll come back to a different problem for a second about consumer and price of food, but um, so consumers are not really feeling like they're getting good value for money, and we know they're not, right? Our healthcare costs are skyrocketing, but our, our food gets cheaper and cheaper and worse and worse, um, and farmers aren't really surviving So how do we sort of make that fair? Now, you have to acknowledge that all those middle functions, the middlemen are not all bad. They they all have a a role to play in the system. Somebody has to truck the food. Somebody has to, even if it's, you know, 10 miles, uh, somebody has to aggregate it. Somebody has to put it in stores. Somebody has to sell it. All of those things have to happen. But how do you figure out what is fair within that system? So we realized that we really needed to model the entire thing. And by putting it into a single co-op that's vertically integrated, there's complete financial transparency. And every person in that co-op owns the whole thing. So just because I'm a producer of cheese, I can still benefit from the, the profits, let's say, or the excess um, that's generated by the blueberries. Um, if I'm a producer of, of, you know, if I'm a, if I really like to eat something, I can still benefit from the full, even if I'm, let's say I'm vegetarian and a part and an owner of the co-op, I still benefit from the folks who buy meat. So because we look at it as a whole system and we don't, don't just all eat one thing. We all need a diversity of foods and a diversity of people to be served. We all benefit collectively and we share that risk and we share that reward so by putting all of that into a single co-op with financial transparency, we feel like we can start to kind of ask some of the tough questions. You know, people always go, well, why is it that the farmer's market broccoli costs more than the broccoli at the, at the, you know, at the, at the generic grocery store? And it's, that's a very difficult question to really answer in a short way um, because you, they, they sort of look the same. The two broccolis look the same. They might even taste the same. Sometimes the one in the grocery store might even taste better. Um, so it's very difficult to tell people, well, this one is better for the earth, and it's better for the people who grew it, and it's better for you. But in the long term, you may not get cancer you know, 25 years down the road. But today, uh, there's not really much benefit that I can point to. So there's, a, there's an education gap, um, and there's a value gap. So we, by putting consumers in the co-op, we can start to kind of have that, close some of those education loops. Third aspect of our, of our kind of entity design is a pure nonprofit around that's focused around education. So we have a foundation that both the land trust and the co-op have this educational mission, and they kind of look to that foundation to provide some of that.
0: So you have integrated I just recently had on the podcast Luis Sierra of the California Center for Cooperative Development. And he was very careful to distinguish between a service cooperative, which is, you know, like a, a grocery co-op uh, that's member owned, and a worker cooperative, uh, which would be more like what you're talking about with a, a farm where, where the workers own the uh, means of production. So it seems like you have integrated this model of a worker cooperative and a service cooperative into a single entity. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so we are basically three cooperatives in one. So we're a worker cooperative, we're a producer cooperative, and we're a consumer cooperative. Uh, those are the, sort of the traditional terms used in the co-op development world. Now there's been a, a, a kind of a trend, which is, I'm happy to say, reversing in recent years in American co-op development circles. And it comes from uh, of thinking that producers and consumers cannot be in the same cooperative together because they have fundamentally um, opposite um, desires. Now, this comes from this broken model of, of, of sort of economics. And, and, and it's, again, fundamental to, to our model of capitalism that we practice today in this country. And that is this idea that consumers are these rational units, efficiency maximizing units. And producers or corporations are, are the same thing, but on the other side. So one is always trying to get the highest price for essentially the crappiest product. Um, you know cheapest product that they can produce, and the other one's always trying to get the best product for the lowest price and maximize utility Now of course we know that all that's all garbage. Uh, people don't behave like that corporations don't always behave like that, although more often than not unfortunately they do um, and you know even economists today don't really think of things like that anymore it's just a convenient a rash, uh, you know, sort of oversimplified system for understanding some of the fundamental fundamentals of economic theory. Um, so this idea that consumers and producers can't sit at the same table together, I completely reject. And if you look at successful multi-stakeholder co-op models from the rest of the planet, you know, they've proven that those things can happen together. So... But we sort of said, well, no. And, and we weren't the first ones, and we weren't the only ones. There's plenty of other people in this country who are now starting to kind of move down that pathway. Um, but we're probably, a, you know, less. there's probably less than a dozen multi-stakeholder co-ops in this country. And none that I know of are trying to put the entire system into one co-op. Now, again, remember, we, we don't know if it's going to work. It's still just an experiment at some level.
0: So how does this multi-stakeholder cooperative, um, wh- I mean, what things does it need, what elements need to be in place for it to be successful?
1: Oh, that's a big question. Um, You know, fundamentally, Frank, it all comes back to culture, right? Um, What we're really talking about is cultural change. So you're looking at this sort of giant system that we call culture. And in order for, you know, when you look at systems design, really, you realize that the values of a system is what determines its structure and then its structure is what determines its behavior. So if we're going to invent a new system, we really need to first step back and start with values, what I call stories, new mythologies is what we need, right? And that's kind of the the bread and butter of culture. Um, And then from once we've created those new stories and we tell ourselves new stories, only then can we build the structures of what I call sort of invest, and I don't mean that just as money, um, in, in building the structures that embody that value system and only then, after that, can we expect the modified behavior. Okay. So it's a it's a very long drawn out process. Um, I, I'm I'm sorry to kind of keep going back to philosophy, but really, unfortunately, there's no I can't point to seven sort of physical things and say here's what you need to go do this. Um, you know, I don't know what those things are. We are talking about cultural change, so it's a slow process. So we you know we do it with with getting people involved, with, um, with bringing people together all the time, with having these conversations, with the communal investment in this stuff, which is sort of slogging it out. Now, the million-dollar question, of course, is that the time scale that it takes to kind of get it to, let's say, work, is that longer than the amount of money that we have? In other words, can we stay solvent long enough for the culture to change. And we're not trying to change the whole planet here. We're just talking about our little community, right? But even within our community, our little community of members of the co-op even, how do we get ourselves, not just as as consumer members, as buyers of food and eaters of food, but also as workers, we don't really have a culture of cooperation in our society. Um, So it's difficult. It's really difficult to kind of think that way as workers and think that way as producers, think that way as as customers. Um, How do we change ourselves so that we can support something like this? I think it's possible. Um, The million-dollar question is, can it happen in time? Because, of course, there's a limited amount of capital available to this organization, to this project, to sort of survive through its early years before it's self-sustaining.
0: So one of the first, I guess, elements of this worker aspect of the farm is to bring people together with a diverse set of skills who can Mm -hmm. uh, make the land produce in an optimum fashion. Um, Correct. Can you talk about that? How do you put this team together what, um, what characteristics of this team are notable to you?
1: Well, um, obviously, experience and skill set, um, although that experience can be a little bit of a double-edged sword because we're trying to do things in pretty different ways. And sometimes when you get people with a great deal of experience, they can be very, very useful because they bring that experience to the table, but they can also be a little bit stuck in their ways. Um, so balancing experience in some areas with a little bit of inexperience in other areas so that there's a little bit of out-of-the-box thinking is key. And I can't tell you exactly how to do that. It's sort of a you know an intuitive sort of thing, and we get some right and we get lots wrong. Um, but building a team of, of bringing people in, what I, and I, what I initially thought, oh, this is going to be really hard. How am I going to convince experienced farmers to come join this thing? Because if they're experienced farmers and they're still farming, that must imply that they're somewhat successful at doing what it is in their current business model, so to speak. Why would they want to come here? Well, much to my horror, what I realized, when we started to kind of advertise for these roles. And we literally just sort of said, well, you know, we want somebody to run our annuals business. We want somebody who's really going to own our perennial side or the livestock side of things, you know, and really bring a lot of experience to bear in those things and set up a whole new way of doing those things in an integrated, diverse farm. Well, what I found much to my horror is that all those, a lot of the farmers that I had looked to as as someone who would visit farmers markets and meet people and things like that, as the successful ones were on the extreme edge of financial viability. And even people who had been farming for 20 plus years in some, in in some cases and had a successful brand and were well known in the sort of local community were willing to talk about a relatively modest wage just because of the financial security that that brought. And that's really pretty heartbreaking uh, when you think about it. But, at some level, it, it was an advantage to us, I suppose, because we had people with experience who were willing to come do this um, and bring and bring a lot of their you know knowledge and and energy to bear. And I think a lot of those people also realized that it wasn't a failing on their part that their that their farms were struggling as much as it was a failing of them trying to rail against this broader system. And they saw this as potentially a solution to try and change that broader system because which single-handedly would be too difficult for them to do because they're too busy trying to pay the bills and make the mortgage and all of that. So by taking some of that pressure off, by sharing the risk, it again allows people the luxury to sort of you know, invent something or to build something um, that's new rather than just trying to stay on the treadmill. Um, so that was, that's key is to bring those people together. And we, we do it just like any other company. I mean, we say, okay, we really want to get into this, this business, you know, uh, we want to, so for, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. We have a commercial kitchen that's about to open the next two weeks on the farm. And it's, uh, our idea is that we want to really rethink what prepared foods mean um, in our, in our system here. Um, people don't want to cook anymore. They don't have as much time to cook anymore. The, the People seem to have lost the skills of cooking. I mean, Michael Pollan wrote um, in the his book, Legion book Cooked, that the average American is watching more food TV than they're spending time in the kitchen cooking on a daily basis. And so, you know, there's this big disconnect in our society. And and you and I can talk about forever about how, you know, oh, people should really just start cooking and life, life would be much better. But uh, people just don't know how, maybe. And uh, it's going to take time to change. So meanwhile... How do we kind of do pre-prepared foods at some level, or some level of pre-preparedness? Maybe just a chopping a salad, maybe all the way to a frozen something or the other, without the perils of sort of the prepared food market that you see in the grocery stores today—of you know bad quality ingredients, thousands of different unpronounceable chemicals and preservatives and things. Um, you know, packaging. How do you sort of take care of those things and still provide the convenience of prepared foods? So we put together a job description, a kind of slightly crazy sounding job description, and put it out there, and we interviewed dozens and dozens of people. Um, and because of the wage we're offering is not that great, um, you know, there was lots of people who seemed to have a lot of skills, but were not willing to work for that wage. So we really had to find somebody who had the idealism at some level to sacrifice initial wage for the broader vision. Um, and I'm happy to say that we, you know, we did find somebody, and, and I'm really excited that they're here and, and contributing, you know, their skill set to the thing. So... Uh, It's a a very sort of, at some level, a pretty standard hiring process. And then we say that once you work here for a year and undergone a certain amount of training um, through a training program that we put together, then you're eligible for co-op membership, at which point you buy into the co-op. So you invest the dollars as well. You buy a share. You are now a legal owner of the business. And you share not only in the profits and the decision-making, but also in the losses. So, So some of those joys of entrepreneurship, which is sharing of losses, comes back but you still get
0: a wage that's maybe like a base level, you know. Is part of what... So you have these folks, uh, presumably, as you said, someone who's in charge of the annual aspect of the Mm -hmm. production and someone who's in charge of the perennial aspect and someone who's in charge Mm -hmm. of the commercial kitchen. Now, are these Mm -hmm. people developing the management processes that are required? I mean, obviously, all of these jobs require some... Uh, routine tasks that need to happen every day mm-hmm. or once a month, these mm-hmm. types of things. Mm-hmm. Are these people responsible for defining these processes and m- making yeah. the business so sustainable we that way?
1: Um, Basically, we, we look at it as a whole bunch of little businesses within a bigger business. So we give those people a great deal of operational control and ability to kind of define their day-to-day operational processes. Okay, uh, We also give them a great deal of power to kind of you know, to form their own teams, to hire the people that they need. But everybody works for the bigger co-op. And we do basically, um, I'm sorry to use this kind of technical term, but sort of a, a labor arbitrage between the entire group. So even though you might have been hired, let's say, as a production assistant in the kitchen, the idea is that if the kitchen is having a slow day, you might be, you know, able, willing, and asked to work, you know, pulling carrots or taking care of livestock. Now, there's lots of advantages to that. Number one, unlike a lot of small-scale agriculture today, um, the work is less seasonal, right? So we try and tell people, we're going to try and make this a full-time job, 2,000 hours a year. Yes, there's still some seasonality built into it. If your primary job is field hand, you're going to be busier in the summer months than you are in the winter months. But in the winter months, we'll still give you work. It may not just be out in the muddy field, I it might be other work, but from a livelihood perspective it allows you to make this this job, this role, a livelihood rather than where you have to go off running in the winter to find a second job or you have to find some other way to kind of make your economic ends meet. So that's one aspect from the workers point of view. From the from the from the organization's point of view, it allows us not to have to rely on seasonal labor. You train people once and then they become generalists, so they might have a specialty, something that they I call a sort of jack-of-all-trades and master of one or two, okay? So you have your, your specific, your, your primary responsibility, but then you help out in other areas. It helps your body because, as we all know, this is physical work. A lot of it is repetitive, as you said. Your back's going to hurt in one spot, or your hand's going to hurt in one spot after you pulled, you know, 100 rolls of carrots out. Well, by going and working on the livestock, maybe the different part of your back and hand is going to hurt. And that's, you know, it's, it's facetious, but it's, it is better for your body to kind of have different roles as well. So you don't become this automaton. You know, it's not this assembly line kind of model as much as possible. So we do a, a daily, basically, prioritization of tasks, meeting in the morning, everybody gets together. And, you know, here's the calendar and here's who's working today, this many hours, here's who's out. And these are the tasks, And oh, that someone have an emergency that needs to be taken care of. We do a little bit of labor arbitrage. And that allows us to kind of keep people employed through the year and not do this sort of seasonal layoff thing that a lot of small farms do.
0: Now, I'm sure that uh, people are quite busy in that type of context and there's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. But I wonder from a bigger picture, uh, how much work are you guys doing, if any, to document what some of these processes are so that others can look at that and say, okay, we can see what these steps here are and, and we can kind of replicate this as we try to develop our own business model?
1: Unfortunately, nothing formally. I mean, I you know, talk to a lot of people. We get a lot of visitors. We spend a lot of time with people specifically, you know, people who've heard about us and have some specific questions. We'll spend hours on the phone with people. Um, we get visitors and things like that, but no formal kind of documentation process. Now, all our legal documents, you know, bylaws, articles, the things that we had to pay lawyers to develop we share freely because that's as much as um you know I, I like the work that some of our lawyers have done, I see no reason for the whole planet to pay them multiple times to do it over and over again. So, you know, even things like lease agreements, we we share all that freely with people um so that they can then use that as a jumping off point for their own agreements and things. Now of course there are differences in law within between states and countries, so all that has to be taken into account. But I do think that that's a huge barrier for a lot of people to start these things is some of that sort of legal um, structure design and all of the cost and time and energy that goes with that. We have spent you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of hours um, designing um, the legal documents around all of this, and I'm happy to share all of those freely with people.
0: And what about the capital outlays required to do something like this? I mean, is that something that you're... Um sharing with the world as well in terms of what can be expected to make something like this happen
1: yeah sure so I mean you know the, the big there's the sort of a I would say that the capital outlay that we put in and uh, that my family put in really to start this off um, was, can be divided into sort of two parts so let's say let's say three parts okay uh, the big part is the land itself and now the land is overvalued right? it, its pricing is based on the desire of Rich urban folks who want the rural lifestyle—it's not really priced at its agricultural productivity values, right? It's not priced as agricultural land. It's it's priced as sort of a rural estate land because of its proximity to the city. So the land is more expensive than it should be. So that's so that's one piece, right? But we think that that land is worth saving um, in the long term for agriculture because it's excellent soil um, and has other kinds of, of benefits. So fine. So that's one piece of the investment. Uh, the other piece of it is the infrastructure on the land, you know, irrigation systems, barns, greenhouses, you know, the commercial kitchen, the store, all sorts of things like that. So that's the that other piece. Um, and then the third piece is sort of startup operating capital for the co-op itself. Because as I said, until it's making enough money to pay its own way, it needs to be supported by outside investment, just like any other startup business would. So let's start with that piece. Okay. Um, My family put put in a certain amount of money into the co-op in the form of capital stock in the co-op, okay? And we can talk a little bit more about how co-ops are financed. But then we also went out and um, sought money from other people in the community and in the area who were interested in in what we were doing and were willing to put their money behind it. So we basically went looking for patient capital or slow money, is is what I call it. and theres not sort for of the national slow money movement that, that I've been a part of that's really helped kind of get some of those ideas together. Um, so we found a bunch of people who were willing to kind of go and buy stocks, some people who made loans to the co-op. Um, some of them are customers who were CSA customers first and then came to us and said, oh, you know, I'm really interested in putting my retirement money into this. And we'd say, oh, my goodness, that's a really very risky thing to do. But, you know, the, the people really believed in what we were doing and um, really wanted to put their money to work, um, they're very modest amounts of money to work um, within a framework that was in line with their own morality, rather than putting it in Wall Street. Um, so, you know, we, we did some of that, and there's some I can talk for a long time about some of those kind of financial things. Um, and and so that so that was how the kind of co-op survives until it makes enough profit to pay its, uh, or makes enough revenue to pay its own bills. Okay, which it does not right now. We hope that it will by 2016. Okay. Um, I mean, we do make a lot of revenue, so we, it's not like we're relying entirely on, on startup capital, but we are currently relying on startup capital to stay alive. Um, one of the things that we have to rely on startup capital for quite a bit more than I would like is just cash flow. As any business owner knows, you know, cash flow is a huge problem, and in farming, which is a seasonal business, it's an even bigger problem. And banking today has really failed us um, and doesn't provide um, things like lines of credit, which are really the bread and butter of, of businesses. Um, so it's very difficult as a small business, especially as a farm, which banks don't even take seriously anymore, small, small farms to get lines of credit, to get even little uh, loans. And they want, you know, crazy interest rates and mortgages on your house and all sorts of silly things like that, which I completely refuse to do because I think it's unethical. So we go instead to our community and say, okay, why don't you loan us the money? We'll give you this back. We pay some people interest back in food, not in cash. Okay. So that's an interesting arrangement. Um, and, and we try and sort of make an end run around the banking system, which really has failed us in this, in this arena. Um, the infrastructure itself on the land, um, my family kind of invested in and, and paid for, okay? And that's owned by that sort of land trust entity and the same as and the same with the land, okay? Now, we get a lease, um, that entity that the land trust leases the land out to the co-op, but that lease is set up on a not-for-profit basis right now, as in the lease value, uh, the dollar amount is based entirely on true cost, like the Property taxes and insurance, and that's it. Um, now, obviously, that is not something that is self-sustaining forever, right? Um, because it's going to be difficult to kind of find um, land that is happy to be to be um, to, to be operated at with that kind of a lease level. Um, but that's really I see as a stopgap. I see it as sort of a subsidy at some level, a startup subsidy. And over time, the model I would love to see is that a lot of, of productive farmland is perhaps owned as a commons by society as a whole and not by necessarily by individuals who are always gonna get trapped into this kind of buy low sell high mentality or real estate as a tradable commodity which I reject. I don't think of land as something that should be a tradable commodity.
0: Have you ever heard of Fordo Farm?
1: Um Maybe, uh, the name sounds familiar, but I, I, if I have,
0: I don't know much about it. So tell me about it. Well, I would just recommend you check it out. Um, it's it's a farm, and and I was just uh, made aware of it by Darren Doherty uh, in the previous mm-hmm. in a previous episode of the podcast. Um, and basically, it's what you're talking about, where a farm, you know, the the previous model for it was it was owned by a lord um, in mm-hmm. the United Kingdom. And uh, okay, in the UK. And the lord, uh, I guess, passed away, and was gonna. The family was going to sell the land, but the community decided they were going to, uh, as a group of three thousand landowners, uh, purchase the mm-hmm. land, uh, such that this land would continue to provide them with organic, fresh food. So That'd there are likely. there are some models out there that that mm-hmm. have that uh, aspect to it.
1: Yeah, and of course, the UK has a longer history of sort of commons land um, than we do here in America. Um, We've never really had that. But I I, I think there's a lot of um, hope there um, in commons ownership of, of land,
0: of productive land. This aspect of agriculture makes this startup proposition so much more difficult because, as you said, there are three levels and layers of capital that are required um, you know, if you think of most people talk about startups these days, they're talking about tech startups, and so they need that uh, tech. Uh, they need that startup capital, but they don't necessarily need the inf- their infrastructure needs are minimal, and they certainly don't need sure. to purchase uh, tens or thousands of acres of land to be able to do this. So, uh-huh. it's just a whole another dimension of challenge with agriculture.
1: Yes, absolutely, but there's some hope on the horizon. So, for example, in the Portland metropolitan area, we have the regional government called Metro, which is a sort of a tri-county area around the metropolitan uh, city. And um, they had a bond measure in recent years and a couple of decades um, of over $250 million of taxpayer dollars that people have agreed to on a ballot, you know, put on their property taxes, and that dollars are used to buy critical land on the, that, that is on the watershed of the regional watersheds, so, you know, stream channel, things like that, they buy out this land, which most of it happens to be farms, and they turn around and lease it right back out to the farmer with certain caveats of protecting the watershed. Okay. So here we are, the government, or essentially the public, owns all this productive farmland already, leases it out, manages all of that with very low cost overhead, and does a fantastic job of it. So... Why can't that be extended to productive farmland, where well, you're not just protecting the watershed, but you're also you know, feeding the community, providing jobs? They, to me, this is economic development. Communities routinely spend billions and billions on tax breaks for large corporations uh, to, to sort of settle in their community because of the so-called economic benefits, when people like Michael Schumann have shown over and over again that those things are ephemeral. They don't really provide long-term benefit to the community, whereas... In the kind of investment that I'm talking about, made by a community as a commons, could provide long-term investment because you can't—you can move your factory from, you know, from Portland to Alabama because Alabama gave you a better tax break tomorrow. You can't move your land, so I, I think that there there are existing ways of doing this, existing models that can be applied to this. It's just a question of political and cultural will.
0: Well, of course, and there's land trusts all over the country that um, haven't yes. haven't applied this. Other level of model that you're talking about, but they they may be ripe for it.
1: Yes, I think they are. I think land trusts have focused, just like sort of the early um, sort of conservation movements, you know, on first preserving, on sort of stopping the bleeding. But just like environmentalism is now starting to kind of, the environmental movement is starting to move from stopping the bleeding to envisioning a new future. And a new way of doing things, a sort of a new relationship to the environment and people. I think we need to do the same thing here with land trust. You know, we stopped the development by buying the land and putting it into a land trust. Okay, that's step one. The next step is how do you then create a thriving, abundant community that manages that land in a sustainable, environmentally sort of you know um, sort of sensitive way, in a regenerative way. Um, and provide economic benefit and social benefit and cultural benefit to the community around
0: it. Well, um, I do need to wrap this up here, but I want to ask you one final question. Are there any other comments or thoughts or just anything that you really want the listeners to consider as they think through these challenges that we're talking about?
1: Well... um guess so I'll leave you with one thought, which is, um, I'm, like I think a lot of us who are in this space, you know, Wendell Berry is sort of our sage at some level um, and puts into, into beautiful words the things that we take hours to say. And Wendell Berry spoke of the unspeakable intimacy between humans and what we refer to as the natural world. And I think what he was really getting at is this sort of dualism that is implied in our culture. And I think that that dualism, which I think is a false dualism, is at the root of many of our problems. And I guess when, when I think about the relationship between myself and the plants and animals that I eat and the people who sort of coax them from the earth, I feel that the essence of this relationship is, is communion. And communion is really at the center of the story that we as a society have to kind of invest in and build together. So that's the, my
0: parting thought. Well, I would like to thank you, Narendra, for all the work that you've done through the years. And I think on the behalf of the listeners as well, um, the example that your organization is providing for many other people who are struggling with the exact same issues around the country and around the world, uh, it's an inspiring story. And, And it's beyond that. It's a really great example and case study that people have available to them so that they can look to build these models in their communities. So thank you very much. And thank you for joining me on the Agro Innovations podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. That concludes my interview with Narendra Varma, who is the founder of the Our Table Cooperative. And I will, of course, share a link to their website on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. And Narendra also mentioned that many of the legal documents that he has prepared or has had prepared for the formation of his cooperative are open source and available to anyone so that they can develop these ideas without having to pay a lot of money to lawyers. So I do not have offhand um, access to those documents. I haven't actually sought them out, but I will see if I can um, either send Narendra an email or get on their website and see what I can find in those terms and Perhaps link to them in the show notes for this episode, or probably more likely share them with people uh, via Twitter or via the Agro Innovations blog or some combination thereof so that you can access those and take a look at them. And hopefully, um, if you're considering forming a similar operation, you can start to think about some of the legal implications and the documents that you will need to do so. Now, this episode of the podcast was made possible by a suggestion from a listener, so I would like to thank the listeners for offering these types of suggestions so that we can get some of these case studies out to the broader audience. And if anybody else has similar examples that they would like to share so that we can continue to unwrap some of these different cases of cooperatives and collaborative development of permaculture around the country, please do so. I have some other leads in that regard that I will be following up on. So you can expect uh, more of this in the future. Again, thank you to everyone who has donated, not just uh, this past week, but all the donors to this podcast. And just to let you know that it really does make it much more possible and feasible for me to continue to provide this content on a regular basis, you may have noticed that um, I am releasing podcasts on a weekly basis, just about on a weekly basis these days, and I will try to keep up with that schedule if I can, um, but the donations certainly make that much easier for me to do. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons attribution share-alike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. And in fact, many people have and are using some of the content from the Innovations podcast for some of their projects, and there is a pretty excellent uh, set of videos from my interview with Bill Mollison with some video footage of agricultural operations um, overlaid on Bill Mollison's voice as he talks about specific topics. I'll see if I can track those down and maybe share those with you via the blog as well. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos.